I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. Now, in Revelation, we have been looking, we're going to go through the first five chapters. We're going through the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the seven churches, and we want to discover who Jesus is. The, the, the title of this series, this sermon series, is Unveiling Jesus. And it kind of caught a little of you by surprise, but my challenge was that the book of Revelation, though it is apocalyptic at points, it is not an apocalyptic book. That is, that it is not a roadmap to the end times. I understand that is in disagreement with many people in our day today. But the reason why most people do it is because the very first word in Revelation chapter 1 is apocalypsis. But the word apocalypsis does not mean apocalypse. That, that sounds strange. Apocalypse, if, if I were to ask you what does apocalypse mean, you would say, well, it has something to do with you know, the end times and right before Jesus comes. But that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word simply means revelation. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it is includes things that will happen at the end of the age, but the vast majority of the book does not. It is actually an encouragement to these seven churches, but not just to the seven churches, because every single letter concludes or has in there, to him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, And so I want to encourage you, though this is a letter that's written to the church at Philadelphia, and Philadelphia holds a very special place in my heart because I grew up just 30 minutes south of it, right? Uh, go Eagles. Hope they take on the, the Atlanta Falcons today and take it to them. But this letter is also written to you. Not just the other six churches, but it's written to you and me. It has something to say to us today. I want to discover what that letter has to say to us today. Before I read it, I want to just share a few things with you. Um, I, I can remember when I was in college, I, God had just given me a, a passion, still does, for evangelism. And one of the things that God laid on my heart was that when I went to the University of Delaware, that I would, I would generally go to their commuter's lounge. Now, their commuter lounge was basically a church that had, been, that had been bought by the university and turned into half of it was a place to study, the other half was a place to eat. So I would go in, I would eat my lunch there, and when I would go in, I would regularly ask, God, show me someone that I can share Jesus with. Now, that, that room where you would eat, they had tables you know, picnic tables, only about this long and about yay wide. And so it was ideal for two people, though four could fit. So I would just say, Lord, show me who is it in this room that you want me to reach out to in, in any way possible. Maybe it's just a testimony about something you did in my life that they need to hear. Maybe it's my, my testimony of how I came to Christ. Maybe it is just the gospel. And God would open up many, many opportunities. I remember, though, there were times in which I would walk into that room, and I had maybe pulled an all-nighter for studying for an exam or any number of reasons, and I was just so exhausted. And I would say, Lord, not today. 
And can I just tell you that in my physical weariness, invariably, God would have me sit down with someone and there's an opportunity. He would just open the door to be able to share Christ with them in so many different ways. Um, I, I also remember, though, that there were times in which I would go to my paint touch-up, doing my paint touch-up business, and can I just be honest with you, it, it was when you're out in 95-degree weather on top of a pavement that radiates probably 115 degrees, and you do that all day, and at that time, several years ago, I was doing it full-time and then pastoring part-time. I tell you what, I would, in the mornings, I would just walk on that lot and I'd just say, Jesus, just help me get through the day. And there also came upon me a weariness, not just a physical weariness, but an emotional, mental weariness. I would really rather be pastoring, sharing the gospel, ministering, counseling, doing something other than this business. And can I just tell you that when I would walk on the lot like that, and now it's not just physical weariness. I'm talking about just emotional, spiritual weariness to the point where I would be doing paint touch-up sometimes, and I would just say, wow, I am still doing this. That was like 10 to 15 years ago, and I am still doing it today. And it, but Jesus has a purpose for this. Last night, guys, we talked about work at our men's group meeting. Such an important a part of our life for us to see it from Jesus' perspective. And God was just constantly reshaping my perspective on the work that he had given for me. Can I just be honest with you? It was during those times of my personal weariness where I saw God do some of the most amazing things. I remember one person in particular, he was a service advisor at one of the dealerships, and part of what I would do is, once I walked the used cars, finding out you know, what vehicles needed to be done, I also needed to go to the service advisors and say, hey, do you have a customer that needs work done on their vehicle? One person in particular, he was an Hispanic gentleman that I was kind of just, he, he was uh, he joked around a lot. He was a fun-loving guy. And when I began to talk with him one particular day, he was anything but that. And, and I, I said, hey, how are you doing? Like, I, I was interested. Not, hey, how you doing, man? But how are you doing? And he began to unfold for me what had been going on in his marriage and the, how it was affecting his family, how it was affecting the, throughout his day, uh, and he, this guy was in such turmoil. And I, I would just give him some counseling. This went on for weeks and weeks. And I told him, you know, I'm praying for you. I want you to know that. A day came in which he had good news for me, that God was doing something in his wife's heart. And he said, Mike, we want to visit your church. And he began with his wife to visit our church. Now, I, I can't say that they stayed very long. But God did something really amazing in his heart. And even though his wife ended up not staying with him, and that broke my heart, broke his as well and his kids, he, has, he sought to remain faithful to God. In our weariness, church, these are the opportunities that God gives, and he opens doors of opportunity for ministry. Now, some of us, we feel kind of weary physically, 
And we just want reprieve from how hard life can be. And I get that. But Jesus wants us to be concerned more than just our day-to-day pains and struggles and heartaches. God wants us to be filled with a compassion for this world. Even in the midst of Jesus' busiest times, when he was trying to get away from the crowds, even to minister to his disciples, those were opportunities that the Father gave him even then to minister to the masses. Jesus constantly had that on button pressed. How can I love people? How can I share truth with them that will change the way they see life, the way they change the way they see God, the way they can serve him, the way they can fall in love with him and pursue him? And this this was a consuming passion of Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you that it needs to be ours as well. We're going to look at the church of Philadelphia. They are called, they, they are said to have little strength. Now, by little strength, I believe that what he's getting at is you guys are weary. And we're going to see why. There's been a lot of persecution. You're weary emotionally, physically, maybe spiritually. You just want to throw in the towel some days. You just want to step back and say, God, what is going on? I've seen some people as they go through trials, and that word that we'll see here today, trial, it means testing. God is allowing this to say, okay, Mike, where's your heart today? Mike, I get it. Today, you got a really bad attitude about your business. I get that. But where's your heart for me? Is that on button still pressed or are you checking out today? The Philadelphians are being challenged. Don't check out. Stay in there. Hold on. And so my challenge to you is going to be the same. But we're going to see something in this passage that I personally believe is amazing. God is going to be doing something in Philadelphia because even though they're weary, even though they're characterized as people of little strength, they're holding on, they're being faithful, God is going to do something and bless them and encourage them with what he calls an open door. I want to look at that passage. I want to see the various aspects of this, but I also want to see how this all hangs together because it's not just disjointed concepts here. This is a letter, and it's all connected. It all flows, and it has a promise. It has a blessing for every single one of us. Let me read it to you. Starting with chapter 3, verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What an interesting concept. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door. Church, I want you to just say that with me if you could. I'm going to place before you what? An open door. Okay, just one more time, because I want this to sink in. I'm going to place before you an open door so that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you 
from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world and to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will, I, will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from God. We read about that in chapter 21. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm going to just put up, I'm going to turn this board around so you can see it now. And I'm putting it up on here because I can write a little, bigger, big, a little bigger, I think, than what would be up there. And this is going to be on the, the camera a little bit better, I think. Here are the four components of what Jesus is commending them for. Actually, the last one is a challenge or a charge. But each letter begins with generally two symbols. They come from the first chapter though this one is unique because it gives two symbols, but they are not found in Revelation 1, John's vision of Jesus. Then he moves on from there, and he generally gives them commendation. After that, he gives them rebukes or challenges. Nevertheless, I hold this against you. And Jesus is bold with that concerning churches that need to have a fire lit under them. Something interesting about this particular letter to Philadelphia is that there are no challenge, excuse me, there are no uh, rebukes, none. We find this, he, the, Philadelphia is the second to the last letter. The only other letter that Jesus does not bring rebuke is to the church in Smyrna. They were the second letter. So the second letter and the second to the last letter, there's no rebukes. There's only commendation. And then he closes with a promise of rewards. To him who overcomes, I will give something. I'm going to bless them. We learned one day as far as their, their name being written on a white stone. And what on earth would that mean? Here, we're going to see some different blessings or different rewards that are guaranteed to everyone who overcomes and endures to the end. So what I want to do right now is instead of jumping into the first two symbols, I'm going to quickly go through these four things. I want us to understand them at least generally but I want us to then ask, as we look at them and say, well, how do all of them connect? Are they just isolated commendations, or are they in some way connected together? After I go through those, then I'm going to talk about the, the uh, symbols and then the blessings to the one who overcomes. And we're going to see how they come together and pull these together. And then I'm gonna, I want to make some comments. If these are to be seen together, that has tremendous implication for us. They're not just isolated. But I'm going to do this, and oh, yeah, I'm going to do this, and oh, yeah, I'm going to... No, they're all held together. And they're going to give a promise then to the Philadelphians. Okay? So the first one here, an open door. An open door, we can see in Scripture, is not literally an open door. Paul uses this as a metaphor on a number of occasions, 
in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says this. Uh, I'm going to read 8 and 9. He's in the city of Ephesus. He was there for three years, and he's writing at the end of those three years the first letter to the Corinthians. He says this, but I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because, verse 9, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. If I turn the page just a few, a few pages in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he says this, and he's writing now from Macedonia. He has left Ephesus about six months later. He now pens 2 Corinthians, and he says this. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, he makes a choice to move on from Troas, even though God had opened a great door of opportunity. A great door for what, church? For ministry. And I'm going to challenge us. In our hearts, God wants to stir us up to have a similar heart. This isn't just for apostles. It's not just for pastors like myself or elders or overseers or deacons. It is for everyone who follows Jesus. God wants to give you open doors of opportunity to minister to people, to reach out to them and love on them, to speak truth to them, to share your personal testimony, how you came to Christ. Point them to Jesus. Remember, just like the Samaritan woman at the well. God gave her an open door to her fellow Samaritans. And she put, come see a man who told me everything about my past. Ooh, really? He told you everything? Okay, and, and this, anyway. You remember that story. And so she pointed people to Jesus. That was an open door of opportunity for her. God wants to give similar opportunities to us. Colossians 4.3, Paul says, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the ministry of Christ, for which I am in chains. And so it's clear that this open door is an open door for ministry. It may not necessarily be an open door for business. That's not how the word is used in context in the New Testament. But if you look at this, he says that he's going to open the door that no one can shut. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the symbols, the key of David and, and such. But here, I want to simply note this. In your Bible, at least in the NIV, it says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, let me just speak to this. The Greek literally reads that God is going to give them an open door. Jesus is going to give them an open door that no one can shut. And the Greek word there is not, I know that, it's the Greek word because. Now, some of you with more literal translations, it actually says that. Why is God going to give them an open door? Because you have little strength and, not yet, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So why is God going to give them, or Jesus, give them an open door? It's because, three things, you have little strength. I'm going to give you an open door because you're weary. 
Okay, I, I testify, yes, Mike, God, so many times Jesus would give me an open door because I was weary. He wanted to show me something, but it's more than that. It's not just because you're weary, but he also goes on and he says, you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Do you get the, the, this ring, this sense that there's a lot of persecution going on? They've been tried. And they have kept Jesus' word. And specifically, we read later, it's the word to endure. Endure. Keep your eyes focused ahead. Keep moving forward. Don't fall away. Don't backpedal. The seed that fell upon stony ground did not have deep roots. And when hard times came, do you remember what happened? Because their roots did not go deep. They dried up, they withered, and they fell away. They stopped believing. The, the seed that fell upon thorny ground, the thorns represented the distractions of the world. Many times it was wealth. Other times it was just trials. And those things began to choke the seed, as the plant, as it would grow. And eventually, the plant died. See, those things can quench what God is trying to do in our hearts. Don't let that happen. God is looking for seed that falls on good ground. Now, the truth is, to some degree, we all have stones, we all have thorns, and in essence, Jesus is wanting to cultivate those out of our life so that we are not distracted, so that wealth does not deceive us, so that when hard times come, we stand our ground. And the Philadelphians have done this, and he commends them. Wow, you have kept my word. I know you're weary. You have little strength. But do you remember the passage in Scripture that says, when you are weak, then I am, what? Strong. When I am weak, then God is strong. Like in Gideon, 300 men against 130,000 Midianites. What? Come on, no way. Oh, yes way so that he would receive the glory and show them it is not by your sword, Gideon, not by the skill of those 300 men that I'm going to defeat the enemy for you. I am going to do it so that I will receive the glory. I know that you have little strength. I know you're weary, but you have kept my word. And you, it said, <clears throat> you have not denied my name. They have held on. They have not backed down. They're entering into a time in history in which Domitian the emperor demanded that people worship him as God. And this emperor cult caused people to make a decision. Am I going to follow Jesus or am I not? Because they were threatened with death many times. Punishment at others. Thrown into prison. We learned about one of the faithful followers of Jesus in the city, uh, not at, in one of the other cities, Antipas, and he did lose his life because he stood firm. He held on to the word, and he did not back down. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you an open door for those three reasons. I wanna, and I'm going to come back to that, but we need to ask, why would God do that? Yeah, Jesus, come on, just give them a break. They've been on the front lines. Ah, oh, but you see, now, now that they're like Gideon's 300, I'm going to do something amazing for them. 
Some of you, you're weary today. And Jesus, I believe, wants to give you an open door. The second thing, he talks about the synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but they're really not. What does he mean by that? See, Jews that he's talking about are ethnic Jews. Jews are supposed to be the people of God, aren't they? Well, not if they reject Jesus. If they reject Jesus, who are the people of God in the new, in the new covenant? It's those who follow Jesus. The Jews who rejected Jesus have been grafted out. And so this synagogue of Satan are ethnic Jews that are hoping to get to heaven by observing the law. The book of Romans, especially chapter 11, has a lot to say about that. Paul, in that same book of Romans, did I? In the book of Romans, chapter 11, he has much to say about that. In Romans chapter 2, he says this. Now listen. He says, No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. These people who claimed to be followers of the one true God had actually rejected the one true God. They were hoping to gain his favor by good works. They had rejected the Messiah, Jesus. They apparently were hurling accusations, false accusations. They were bringing persecution to the Christians, probably trying to turn the Christians in as not following emperor worship. Why would they do that? See, the Jews had acquired a special status. They'd been around a while. They'd acquired a special exemption status, if you will, in the Roman Empire. So that if they didn't worship the emperor, okay, that's for your religion. We're going to overlook that. But see, the Christians were not there. The Christians were considered a cult, an offshoot of Judaism, an aberration, and so the Roman emperor had not given them that kind of status. If Christians refused to worship the emperor, they would be killed or thrown into prison. And the Jews would say, hey, we got some Christians over here, and they're not obeying, they're not worshiping the emperor. Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Satan was using them just as Satan was using Paul. Remember on the road to Damascus, a bright light shines and it's Jesus. Paul falls to the ground. He's blind. And he says, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He says to the Jews, you are persecuting me. You're persecuting Jehovah, Yahweh. You're persecuting God come in the flesh. That's why he calls them a synagogue of Satan. And he says about them, he says to the Philadelphians, oh, you wait, they're going to come to you and they're going to fall down. This is how the Greek word says, they're going to bow down and know, or NIV translates, acknowledge, Jesus loves you. The text says they're going to acknowledge, I have loved you. But who's writing the letter, church? It's Jesus, right? So the Jews are going to come to the Christians Many of them Jews, many of them Gentiles, and they're going to say to them, Jesus loves you. Oh, I'm going to come back to that one. I want you to see, though, this, the third thing is that they're going to be kept from the hour of trial. 
I understand that there are some people who, when they read through this, they say, well, technically they're going to be kept through the hour of trial. Well, let me say that the Greek word ek is translated from or away from or out of or from, but it does not, it's not translated through. It has this concept of separation. The hour of trial, whatever that is, is going to test the entire world. I'm going to keep you separated from it not just spiritually protecting them. And I believe that God would do that. He's actually going to keep them away from, separate from, out of this hour of testing. I'm going to come back to that. Because when we truly understand what's happening there, I think we're going to see how this is all connecting. And then lastly... Well, let me just say this, that the trial that he says, this hour of trial is a Greek word that's translated either testing or temptation. In James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face what? Trials of many kinds. That's the same Greek word here. So it can be translated trials, but it is trials that test us. It could also just be simple temptations, like when Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So testing or temptation. But in every testing, there is a decision that we will make. Am I going to choose to follow Jesus or am I not? And we all go through this church every day day or maybe every week, you face something that wants to push you away from Jesus, that wants you to question the truth of his word. God, do you really love me? Am I going to, now this testing is going to come upon the whole world. So it's not just the Christians in the Roman Empire, but it's going to be throughout the Roman, the word their world generally is translated inhabited world or known world and probably is the Roman Empire and maybe a little bit beyond, not necessarily every square inch of planet Earth. That's just how this Greek word is used. But those living on Earth are going to be tested. Can I also say, I realize some, trans, some understand this hour of trial to be the end times, seven-year tribulation, right before Jesus comes, and that that's what he's referring to. And to keep them out of that is the rapture or secret rapture that's supposed to come seven years prior, <laughs> seven years prior to Jesus' second coming. Now, I, I want to challenge that. Number one, if that's the case, it has nothing to do with the Philadelphians. And so far, everything has to do with the Philadelphians living during this time, roughly around 95 AD. And if this is, has something to do with the end times, then it has nothing to do with them. But I, I'm going to challenge you, it has everything to do with them, because it's not referring to some secret rapture, which I think if, if we really study the word, we're going to be hard-pressed to find scriptures to support that. But I don't believe that that is what this is referring to. This is some, referring to something that Philadelphians at this time, 95 AD, that's going to come upon the entire world. God, Jesus, is going to do something. We're going to come back to that. Hold on to what you have. Don't let them take your crown from you. 
what does that mean? How can anyone take my crown? Aren't I given a crown in heaven? Well, technically, if you look real close, you're going to see crowns resting on every single one of your heads right now. I'm not going to say, psych, you looked. No, truly. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically, just as he's speaking metaphorically. We're not going to have literal crowns per se. And if we do in heaven, they would simply be to symbolize the victory that we have gained in Christ. See, this crown is the Stephanos crown. It's not the crown that the kings wear to demonstrate rulership. It is the crown that someone wins by becoming a victor, like in Olympic Games. They would receive a wreath. This is not a, a, a gold crown, per se, though sometimes to symbolize purity and expense that victor's crown would be gold. Jesus wore this victor's crown throughout Revelation. The 24 elders wear that same victor's crown, though these are gold, to demonstrate that purity and that sense of eternity and that sense of value. The, the, many of them lost their lives. That's the value that they, they placed upon following Jesus and gaining victory in Jesus' name. He says, don't let anyone, while they're still alive, the Philadelphians, don't let anyone take your crown. See, you have this crown. You have the victor's crown. It is through Jesus Christ because of his death and his resurrection from the dead. This is yours. Don't let anyone take that victor's crown from you. In essence, don't be like that seed sown on the rocky ground. Don't be like that seed sown on the thorny ground in which when we go through trials, we begin to wonder, wow, God, where are you in this? Now we go a little bit for, we've all asked that question, haven't we? Haven't we? I would venture to say the most godly have asked that question. God, where are you? I don't get this. I don't understand this. But then don't go on and say, God, you have rejected me. I am all alone. But see, that's not true. We can feel alone. That doesn't mean we are alone. That's why we need to constantly come back to the truth. See, they have held on to the truth. They've held on to Jesus' word, and they have not denied his name. See, don't go down that road. Can I tell you, in my own life, I have seen people, and, and, and they have exuded attributes of truly following Jesus, and they just turned away. They, they didn't see how things worked out, and they got weary, and they just say, I just, I just can't trust Jesus anymore, and they walked away. Whether they're Christians or not, whether they'll be making it to heaven or not, I'm not the judge on that. I would want to call them, though, back to Jesus, and he's going to be their final judge. But he's saying to the Philadelphians, you've not done that. You've remained true. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to this victory. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the challenge that perseveres. You've done this. Don't let anyone distract you. Don't let life's discouragements distract you. Don't let your own weariness cause you to just step back and throw in the towel and say, I quit. I'm done. Don't do that. Don't let someone mocking Jesus like the synagogue of Satan would do, and don't let them speak so harshly in accusations and, you know, where's God in your life right now, huh? 
as maybe some of the Christians are dying from persecution. Yeah, where's Jesus? And for then some of them to step back and say, yeah, where is Jesus? Have we not asked that question before? God, where are you in this situation? Don't then take the next step and say, I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to, why should I sacrifice? Because the victor's crown church is all about sacrifice. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the beginning and the end. And I want those to speak to us and show us how these hold together and then quickly walk through some of these things and connect them and see, Jesus, what are you really getting at? Do you just want them to know, hey, I'm giving you an open door of ministry? And hey, the synagogue of Satan, they're, they're going to fall down at your feet and say, Jesus loves you. Why would they do that? You know what? I'm going to also keep you from the hour of trial because you've been faithful. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to challenge you, hold on to what you've got. Or, or are they connected? So let's go back to verse 8. And in verse 8, he's in, excuse me, verse 7, he says, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Can I just retranslate that? He, he is really saying, literally, he is saying, I am the holy one. I am the true one. And some translations reveal it because the definite article is there. The is in the Greek here. Jesus is saying, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. How is that significant? What does that have to do with this, Jesus? Now, remember, all the symbols and the blessings speak to the heart of every letter. We've seen this. Why is it important for Jesus to say he's the holy one, that he is the true one? For Jesus to be the holy one, let me just read a few passages to you. Mark 1, verse 24, a demon is being cast out of a man and he yells, Jesus, you are the holy one of God. In Acts 3, 14, Peter challenges the Jews, you disowned the Holy One. That is, by crucifying him on the cross. Acts 2.27. It's a quote from Psalm 16.10, and it says, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And it's actually a prophecy about Jesus' resurrection. Throughout these passages, Jesus, the Messiah, is called the Holy One. Even from the Old Testament, John 6, 69, Peter confesses, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What is up with this title of Holy One? See, the Holy One, two things from the Old Testament. Only God, only Yahweh was called the Holy One. Only he was called the Holy One. <laughs> they, they may say prophets were holy, or a holy man, but not the holy one. Only God was called the holy one. And number two, the Messiah was looked to as the holy one. This is a declaration from Jesus saying, I, the, I am the holy one, that he is the Messiah. Hang on to that. Not only does he say, I'm the holy one, that is, I'm the Messiah, and I am God come in the flesh. Whoa, is that starting to kind of rock their theology, Jewish theology? Jesus, the Son of God, is God? What? But he's also the Messiah. He then says, I am the true one. You see, there have been many false Christs, many false messiahs before Jesus and after him. 
And he is saying, I am the true Messiah. No one else. The true Messiah was the one who died on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And we see that in chapters 4 and 5. We're going to see that. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the true Messiah. Wow, we're, we're already seeing this theme of Messiah. Why? The second symbol that he gets into is the key of David. The key of David, what is that? Let me just say that a key, as it's used in Revelation, always refers to when it's used metaphorically, and I believe every time it's used, it is used that way, it means authority. When Jesus is seen as having the keys of death in Hades, he's not talking about a literal key because death, that is the grave, and Hades, the pla- that death is where the body goes when it dies, and Hades is where the spirit of the wicked go when they die. So death and Hades, the body and the spirit, have a, a dwelling after death. He says, not that he has a literal key, as if there are literal doors to these places, but he has authority. He is the judge. He is the one who has laid out what you need to do to determine your eternity, where you're going to spend eternity. He has that authority. No one else. John 6 says, John 5 says, that the Father gave Jesus the authority to be the judge. That's the key. So, and, and, and also, there is a key to the abyss. Chapter, Revelation 9, Revelation 20, an angel has that key. He has the authority to open and close the abyss. Authority. Why is it important that Jesus be known as the one who has the key or the authority of David. And what does it have to do with opening a door or closing a door? This actually comes to us from Isaiah chapter 22. If you're taking notes, write that down. Isaiah 22, verse 22. Let me tell you what's going on there. It's during the time, obviously, of Isaiah, but during specifically the reign of King Hezekiah. A man by the name of Shebna was the steward of the house or the palace of the king. But he had been a wicked man. And so he was being deposed. He was actually going to be demoted because he had acted unfaithfully. And his job was now going to be going to a man by the name of Eliakim. And Isaiah says to Eliakim, I'm going to give you the key to the house of David or the key of David. I'm going to read that to you. It's, it is significant. <laughs> and in Isaiah 22, verse 22, it says this. I will place, excuse me, I will clothe him with your robe, speaking to Shebna, the one being deposed. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. Let me pause. What authority? When you were the steward of the palace, you were the one that people came to to set appointments with the king. 
you determined who would come into the palace and who would be barred from coming into the palace. You oversaw the staff. We have that in, in our own country. The chief of staff is the one who oversees the staff and helps work with and set the president's calendar. He also has the president's ear, much as Eliakim would now. So there's an authority. He's the one who allows people in or shuts them out. Let me continue on here. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of David. I will place on his shoulder, on his shoulder, the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Do you see the parallel there that Jesus is trying to draw from? Jesus is saying, I've got that key. See, that's a messianic passage. Even though it refers to the steward of the palace of David, he, it is messianic. Remember Isaiah chapter 9, it says that the, uh, he says, for unto you is born this day, excuse me, for, for unto us is born a son, a child, and the government will be upon his shoulder that place of shoulder and responsibility. Upon Eliakim, his shoulder, upon his shoulder, his responsibility would be placed authority. See, this is messianic. Jesus now is saying, I've got that key. I'm the one who has the keys to the kingdom. That's a New Testament phrase. And I allow to come in who I determine shall based on have you believed in me? And I'm the one who shuts them out. Again, this is very messianic in its focus. Let me continue on. I'm going to go now to the end of the letter, the blessings. So, so far, Jesus declares, I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. I'm the true Messiah. I am the one who has the key of David, and I'm going to keep out those who truly do not believe in me, and I will allow in all those who make the choice to follow me. He is the Messiah. Key of David. He didn't use the term key or keys to the kingdom because the Jews wouldn't have understood that necessarily. But the key of David got that. Why so messianic? Now let's look at the end. So in the end here, he says that I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now he could have said this or at least what he's getting at, he could have said it differently. He could have couched it in easily understood New Testament terms. But he uses this concept of the temple and the pillar. And there were two main pillars, Jokin or Jachin and Boaz. Those were the two main pillars in front of the temple. I'm going to make you like them. This is the promise to those who overcome. He is in essence saying that I am going to make you the, I'm going to make you strong and able to support whatever I give you. You see, this phrase is also used in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars. The church is called the pillar and the foundation of truth in 1 Peter chapter 3. Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3. See, a pillar then was someone that you could place. They would be strong. They would be able to lead. They would be, they would be holding firm to the truth. 
people would be able to look to them. He says, if you overcome, I'm going to make you that established, strong pillar. I know right now you have little strength, but then by overcoming to the end, in my kingdom, you will be strong, forever strong. Then he goes on, and then he, but again, he couches it in Old Testament terminology. Why does he do this? Then he goes on, and he talks about God's name being on them. The name of the new Jerusalem, which is a picture of the kingdom of God, that too will be on them. Then it says Jesus' new name will be on them. Can I just tell you this? For a Jew, when you're talking about the name being on them, that name would be Yahweh. That name would mean to a Jew that God must own me. I belong to him. And I'm going to suggest not only that they belong to him, but that he will sovereignly protect them. See, this is significant when you look in the book of Exodus where God makes a big deal to Moses about revealing his name to Moses, to the people of Israel. Because God was going to superintend them as he pulled them out of Egypt from the land of slavery, as he brought them through the wilderness for 40 years, daily sustaining them. He was the one who was going to be strong for them. He was the one that was going to place his name upon them and keep them safe, provide for them miraculously. Oh, that has so much to do with this letter. We'll get there in just a moment. His name would be upon them. If you were to turn to chapter 7, we find something interesting in this same book, just a few chapters later, about the 144,000. Now, I personally do not believe that the 144,000 are going to be Jews that get saved during a tribulation in the future. But rather, and because the, there's so much evidence that points to that 144,000, not being Jews at the end of the age, but being Jews actually in the beginning. I'm, I'm, I don't want to go there, but what I do want to, to show you is that it says in verse 3 of chapter 7, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000. If you were to go over to chapter 14, verse 1, so with the seal, whatever that is, the only seal we're aware of, by the way, is the spirit by which we are sealed. Seals were, to, were, were generally stamps driven into things like wax that sealed an envelope, or sealed a scroll, or sealed Jesus's tomb. It was the authority of the king or a governor. Don't mess with this. Don't open the letter. Don't break the seal that was on Jesus' tomb, because it's given by my authority. And so this seal was the mark of God on the 144,000, and it's on their foreheads. 
Let's discover what else is on their foreheads. Now this, I'm going to pull all of this together in just a moment, so bear with me. It says in chapter 14, verse 1, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, this concept of ownership. But we realize in chapter 7, it's not just God owning them, but it is God protecting them. And that's the, that, that's the reason why they were sealed in chapter 7. So for the Jews, reading Revelation, they would see that that name of God being on the one who overcomes is because he owns them and he will protect them. For the Jew in the Old Testament, they would look at the book of Genesis and say that is the name of God that is exalted, that he revealed to us, that kept us safe. We followed the angel, that, that is the pillar of fire and cloud, because God's name was in him. This concept of God's name would be so relevant to a Jew. So why all of this concept, why all of this verbiage, these metaphors, symbols, referring that, that, that are rooted in Jesus being the Messiah? Now let's find something. Let's look at this now. There's an open door of opportunity. Hang with me as we walk through. This is a promise, I believe, that God wants to be giving to you when we understand this. There's an open door of ministry. He's going to do it for those three reasons. Because you're so weary. Now, maybe it's to encourage them. I hold the key. I'm the one who's going to give this open door. You just need to watch what I do. You don't need to have any strength. I'm going to do this. Or it may also be, because you're so weary, I want to encourage you with something amazing that I want to do. You've been trying to minister, and it's like all you're getting is persecution. I'm going to turn that around. And I want to encourage you with this. It may be either of those. It may be both. You haven't denied my name. You've held fast to my word. Does he then skip to a topic that's just completely irrelevant to talk about the synagogue of Satan? Or maybe this open door has everything to do with this synagogue of Satan. Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah. The blessings are very Old Testament rooted. Why? I believe because Jesus is wanting to say to the Philadelphians, these are doors of opportunity that I'm going to give you to the synagogue of Satan, the very people who are most vociferous, the very people who would throw them under the bus. Hey, they're not worshiping the emperor, and they would die. They would be thrown into prison. They were the ones who denied Jesus. And yet it is, listen, it is these very people that will somehow find themselves bowing down before. That's how the Greek reads here. Bowing down before the church. Believers in Jews who were believers in Jesus and Gentiles who were believers in Jesus. That's the church in Philadelphia. This synagogue of Satan that were so against Jesus will find themselves falling at their feet. Saying what? Jesus loves you. Two things. Number one, for them to say Jesus loves you must mean that they recognize Jesus as the Messiah. 
Now, maybe it's because they were challenged. They, maybe one of their leaders, the synagogue ruler, I don't know, which going through the scriptures, maybe he got converted. Maybe he began to preach, Jesus is the Messiah. We missed it, guys. And maybe they would come to this realization, wow, we need to follow Jesus. But somehow they take this next step. They don't just fall down at the feet of those who have been acknowledging Jesus in the city of Philadelphia all of this time while they've been hurling insults, much like Paul did to the church. But they had an experience that challenged them that Jesus is the Messiah. But why would they then say, Jesus loves you? Wouldn't you think that if all it was if they were to have come to this realization, Jesus is the Messiah, that what they would acknowledge is, wow, guys, we're so sorry. We've discovered that Jesus is the Messiah. You guys were right all along. But why do they say, Jesus loves you? Can I suggest something here? When, you, when, you, when, when they would acknowledge Jesus, the one that we've been persecuting, loves you, they had to have seen it with their eyes. It's not something that they necessarily read about. It's something that they saw with their eyes. Something is going to happen in Philadelphia, city of Philadelphia that the Jews are going to step back. They're not just going to say, wow, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're going to say, this Messiah has demonstrated his love for you Philadelphians, you Christian Philadelphians. And that's why they come to the conclusion, Jesus loves you. What is going to happen? Something, I believe the very next thing is that which is going to happen. This next thing, number three, is what the Jews are going to see happen, and they're going to step back, and they're going to say, wow, this Jesus we've been persecuting is not only the Messiah, but he has loved you guys all along. How did we miss this before now? Can I ask you this question? I've already referred to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we see that Yahweh, God Almighty, finally reaches down into this nation of Egypt and he pulls his people out of their trials. You see, the nation of Israel was birthed then. It's not just that God gave them strength to endure slavery and the persecution and the hardships that they, they found as slaves in Egypt. Though I'm sure that he did. He gave them strength. He, rest, he pulled them out of it, church. And that's the same concept that we see here in Revelation chapter 3 in this letter. Because you've kept my word, I'm going to keep you from this hour of trial. Now, I don't know what this hour of trial would be. It's going to come upon everyone, not just Christians, but everyone in the known civilized world. It could have been famine. It could have been war. It could have been pestilence or disease. I don't know. Let me just say this, that there are times in which Jesus allows his people to go through famine. He allows his people to go through diseases like COVID-19. And that even Christians 
end up dying. But see, this is a special promise. Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something so radical, so eye-catching, that even the Jews will see my sovereign hand reaching into your lives and rescuing you from what's coming upon the entire world. I'm going to keep you from that. Now, we don't know what it is. I just want you to understand this. Here's the principle. Jesus, there are times in which Jesus is going to rescue you out of your problems. There are times in which he gives you the strength to endure through them. As a matter of fact, I would say that's generally what he does. Jesus, or God, didn't always rescue the people of Israel out of their problems. He rescued them by helping them walk through it. Though you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. But they had to walk through the fire. When you walk through the water, you will not be swept away. But church, they had to walk through the water. So there are times in which Jesus sovereignly protects us going through it. But I hear him saying something a little different. You're not going to have to go through it. I'm going to rescue you. And the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, sees it. Why is everyone being so impacted by what's falling upon this Roman Empire, the civilized world, but you people aren't being affected by it at all? How is it that the Egyptians, when they looked at the Jews during the book of Exodus, 10 plagues devastated Egypt, but never did they touch Goshen where the Israelites lived? God told them in Exodus 7, I'm going to do this so that the Egyptians will know that I am God. Know that I am Yahweh. In essence, that my name is on you and is preserving you. See, Jews, if anyone, would understand God rescuing them from. So here's the irony of all of this. You see, this group of people the synagogue of Satan, who was so vociferous in their attacks against Christ and against Christians, they're going to experience something that will lead them to understand not only is Jesus the Messiah, but it is so clear his favor is upon you. Wow, what? Last night I was talking to the, um, to the men and I brought up a story, and, and I've, I've told this story to you a couple of times, and so I'm just going to really give you the Reader's Digest version of the Reader's Digest version of it. And it's years ago when Juliana was driving her car, stopped at a light, and a brand new Lincoln Navigator backed up into her. And the tow hitch punctured the, the front bumper, bent the hood, and the lady popped out, and she said, oh my goodness, I am so sorry. Let me go get my insurance. She hopped into her navigator and sped down I-4. She got from H.E. Thomas exit all the way down to the Maitland exit. Someone saw what happened and followed her, wrote down the license plate, brought it back. The police arrived. He, he looked up the license. He said, this license plate's not in our system. Well, it was because it was a new navigator. It hadn't gotten through the DMV. Let me not say anything about the DMV, but it can take a while sometimes for them. The truth is, when, 
the next week, I go to my dealership, the Lincoln, Parks Lincoln of Longwood, and I'm going to do work there. Service advisor says, hey, Mike, can you look at a vehicle for me? And I know it's a new one, but I just want to see. Give me an estimate if you can do it. Guess what navigator it was? The chances of that happening are like one in a million, church, that it would happen to be there that following week, that it would, that it would come into the hands of there was probably three service advisors, but this one service advisor always wanted to try and give me work. Mike, can you do this? I'm looking at it. Wow, you know what? This really looks familiar. I look up to the license plate and my jaw drops. That's the license plate number I've been Googling and the, the, the police have been trying to find. Oh my goodness, it's right here. Gotcha, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I brought it to the police's attention. The police ended up taking her driver's license from her because it was a hit and run. And that was up to them. That's not my, that was not my intention. But here's what happened. Word started spreading around the dealership. I walk in to the used car manager. He, he goes into the back into their lounge when he's eating lunch. His name is Joe Kay. And I say, hey, Joe, hey, here's what happened. I found this navigator. Here's the story. I want to handle this so that, you know, squad cars don't come up and start causing people, you know, is, is, Longwood, is Parks Lincoln of Longwood uh, doing something wrong? Why are the police here? I don't want to create a scene. How would you like me to handle it? And then six salesmen walk in, one of which was the one who sold that navigator the week before. <laughs> and they overheard the story and they said, dude, are you seriously? Are you serious? That, that's like one in a million chance that that would happen and it happened to you and I told them, hey, we had prayed. We stopped right there, and we just prayed, God, please, just bring justice. I, this, this is going to impact insurance, blah, blah, blah. And just, Father, please, may the right thing be done. And I told these used car managers that. They heard, they heard my testimony. The next week, the GM is not in the picture here. The GM, I'm walking one way, he's walking the other, and he says, Mike, hey, walk with me. That's usually not a good thing for the GM to, hey, walk with me. I need something private to tell you. This is what he says. Mike, I heard what happened last week. Can I just say, it really seems as if someone upstairs is on your side. <laughs> now, someone upstairs, it was not the administrative staff in the building. That's not what he was referring to. I'm not going to get into that GM's personal life. I know he has been through a lot. I know it was hard for him, a divorce being one. Um, God had an opportunity to say something to him. Now, he didn't fall at my feet and say, Mike, Jesus loves you. But can I, can I just tell you, my prayer is, Jesus, can you please use that simple testimony of your goodness, of your answer to prayer, about how you rescued us from this. For this man, and I still work with Joe Kay, I still work with some of those salesmen that came through that door 15 years ago, and I think it was 15. And there's a testimony there. And every now and then, God opens up that, reopens that door to say something to these men about Jesus. I, I didn't do that. Can I just be honest with you? It was kind of during a hard time in my pastoring 
in which this all happened. So let me add, I was feeling a bit crispy around the edges. And I had little strength. And Jesus said, Mike, can I just open a door for you? I, I want you to see how much I love you. I want to see you to see how much I love your family and how much I am over. I saw all of this. Take a step back and just watch what I'm about to do. And there are times in which God steps into your life and he does something so utterly amazing. He wasn't obligated. I, you couldn't point to a scripture passage and say, come on, God, you have to do it this way. But he did it that way just because he could. Just because he wanted his name to impact a GM, a used car manager, some salesman, my family, my church. Just a little testimony of God's love and his protection. Because see, his name and his ownership was upon us. And he just wanted to say to the world, look how good I am. Look how good I am. And I did have a, a GM say, man, someone up there really is looking out for you. Or translate, really loves you. Yeah, man, I really hope that someday that, they, that those people, if they don't know them today, that they will. If you're feeling like you have little strength today, I believe God wants to do something. It, it doesn't have to be huge, but God wants to do something so that you can tell people about how good he is. It may not be what you're really hoping for. So you might miss it if you're not looking closely enough. But I believe he wants to do something for you. He wants to just show you, wow, I love you. Can you stand with me, church? My prayer is that for all of us feeling weary, either physically weary emotionally weary, spiritually spent. Maybe we've tried evangelizing or ministering to this particular person or group of people, and it just seems to be getting worse. Can you just take a step back right now as I pray and just let God minister to you? Let the Spirit of God speak something so very personal to you. Let him who hears give ear. Let him hear what the Spirit wants to say to the church. Father, I just ask you, Lord, as we're yielded to you right now in this very holy moment, as we're hearing rain falling upon this rooftop. Lord, allow your rain to wet the ground that we're rooted in again. Let it soak down deep. Let it refresh us. Spirit of God, please. 
during this holy moment, speaks so clearly and personally to our hearts. You, Jesus, love us. We've gone through so much. We may be weary. We may confess I have so little strength. But it is in our weakness that God's grace is perfect. His strength is so strong. Father, come to our rescue. Step into our life situations. Speak truth to us. Massage our hearts, God. Encourage us and lift us up out of this weariness. Open a door. Life is not about finances. But some of us have been wearied by our finances. Life is not about being healthy. But some of us, Father, we have aches and pains and bad shoulders and sicknesses. In the midst of this, bring, our, bring encouragement. Show us, God, the depth of your love. And let that show and tell. Let it be declared. Give me opportunities to tell somebody about your love, God. Of what you have done in my life. Maybe it's my testimony. Maybe it's uh, of how I came to Christ. Maybe it's some other way in which you've demonstrated your love. Let me tell people about Jesus. Give me this open door, God, please. And I'm just asking you, Father, spread your fame, your name throughout this world. Show us your love. You did it to the Philadelphians. Do it for us. Encourage our hearts. Because ultimately, God, this is you doing it. This is you doing it, as weary as we are. Thank you for this, Father. Thank you for the good things that you have done. Thank you for the good things that you're going to do. We stand on the truth. God is good. Jesus loves me. We stand on that truth. We stand on that word. We stand on that promise. May nothing move us, God. In Jesus' name I pray.